Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. The 2024 Australian Open men's quarterfinals are set. This is the preview and predictions video. I usually do this with a guest. A little bit tough with the Australian time zone, so I decided to give it a shot all by myself this time, which you guys are used to anyway, so that shouldn't be much of a problem, I don't think. Uh, we got Djokovic versus Fritz, Sinner versus Rublev, Hercoc versus Medvedev, and Zverev versus Alcaraz. I will put timestamps in the description for this video, so if some of these matches have already been played by the time you find this video or this podcast, make sure to go into the description and click ahead to the matches that have not already happened, unless you're just curious, which I think some people are sometimes, about what I said, even though the match has already occurred. This will also uh, be in the order the matches are played, so I'll go from the top of the draw and I'll work my way down, starting with Djokovic versus Fritz. This was one of the quarterfinal matchups that I predicted correctly. I got three out of the four. I got six out of the eight in total, which I'm pretty happy with. Made a mess out of the Medvedev quarter. Knew that one was tricky. Uh, but Djokovic versus Fritz, I did indeed anticipate. Um, what I'm going to do with these, I'm going to start with the form, then I'm going to talk about the head-to-head, -head, then I'm going to talk about some tactics, and then I'll get my prediction. So form first. Djokovic's form. Djokovic's run. Uh, well... Uh, it started with uh, a really competitive four-hour match against Dino Prismich. Uh, Djokovic has an illness. He's been dealing with an illness, and I don't think it's fully gone away. Even uh, in the Manorino match, there were some signs that he was still kind of battling something. Um, to go on top of the illness thing, the forehand wasn't firing at the start of the tournament, particularly in Djokovic's first two matches. But he does seem back on track with the forehand now. Maybe not spectacular, but at least at a at a regular Novak Djokovic level. And I think the Manorino match was his most energetic match mentally. So everything is trending in the right direction in regards to form. I mean, overall, if you look at the fourth round match against Adrian Manorino, although Manorino's legs probably didn't have all that much left in them, it was still a, a really, really rock-solid performance, an impressive performance from Djokovic. As for Fritz, he started the tournament really nervous, uh, survived a scare against Facundo Diaz Acosta, uh, but since that first round, he has been the best version of himself. He's been bold and fearless, big serving, huge hitting, 
Uh, Pass win in the previous round is his best win at a slam ever. And I don't think it signals any, you know, sort of new and improved Taylor Fritz in 2024. I just think that's a good matchup for him. He went out there and did his thing. Uh, potentially Pass is not at the full peak of his powers because of a a lack of preparation, but I give Fritz a lot of credit for that win. I don't think, again, I don't think he did anything completely out of the ordinary for Taylor Fritz, but he really put forward the very best of, of his strengths and what he does best. The head-to-head Djokovic versus Fritz has been lopsided to say the least. It is 8-0 Novak. Fritz has only won two sets, and that was after Novak hurt his oblique at the 2021 Australian Open. Upon hurting his oblique, Novak lost the third set, lost the fourth set, going into the fifth. That looked like it was going to be it. Like it, it just looked like Djokovic got hurt, and Fritz was going to win the match, and Djokovic was going to be out of the Australian Open. Novak ends up winning the fifth set and winning the Australian Open. Fritz didn't play so well in that fifth set. He was a little passive, a little bit tight, and uh, Novak took advantage. In terms of why it's been 8-0 in the larger picture, and and none of the matches have been as as close and mysterious as that one Australian Open match that they played in 2021, it's a case of the linear power game against Novak Djokovic. The best shock absorber in all of tennis. I mean, you can argue that it's close with Medvedev, but I think Djokovic does it at an even higher level than Medvedev because he takes time away, and he's a little bit more offensive with the way he redirects the ball. So hitting really big through the through the baseline like... Taylor Fritz does, and you know, also relying on your first serve to get you very far. Uh, it, it's just not the best package to bring to the table against Djokovic. And we've seen that with other players. I mean, Fritz is similar to Rublev. Djokovic has been really, really good in the Rublev head-to-head, and he's similar to Sinner before Yannick added all that stuff uh, in the second half of last year and found ways to beat Novak. Also, Djokovic at this point, I don't think it's really just a defensive thing. Uh, When Fritz has played Novak, it's mostly been Novak 2.0, which is a bigger serving Novak, a more attacking Novak, and Fritz doesn't have the dynamic movement. He does not do very well in neutralizing that well-constructed clinical aggression that Djokovic brings to the table. Now, very few players are able to to do that neutralizations, but you'll see the players at the very top, those tier one players are able to do that. Fritz has never really been in that range. So what can Fritz change? Well, at the end of the day, the, the solution to the Djokovic defense against the linear power problem, the solution to that problem is you come forward and you see what you can do at the net. And I want to see him push himself to do that. I just don't think he can do it well enough to help him. Fritz is very well aware that the volleys are the next the next thing in his game. I think he's done really well to improve his mentality, improve his tactics, 
uh, improve his his movement to the you know the to maximize that what he's been given, you know, his, his God-given ability to maximize that in the movement category. He's done all these things really well. And he's the, he's this unbelievably, you know, pure ball striker. He knows the volleys are kind of one of the, the missing piece to the puzzle. And he tries to get them better. And he's just really struggled to do that. From what I've seen at this tournament, the volleys are still not operating at a high level. Uh, he needs to try to be offensive against the second serve of Djokovic. That's the second thing. So the net rushing, uh, my perspective is it probably won't work, but please just try it. You're down 8-0 in the head-to-head. Please just try it. Uh, the, and then the, the offensive returning is the second piece of the puzzle. That's the way I see him breaking because he has a great return. Uh, but the big problem has been against Djokovic, and I got to actually pull this up. I thought I wrote it down, and I didn't. Um, Djokovic has been really successful on the second serve uh, against Fritz. And you know that Djokovic is going to be successful on the first serve against Fritz because, again, the neutralization skills just aren't there. On the second serve, that's where Fritz needs to get a really big offensive return in so that he can so that he can jump on Novak right away. Uh, you know, when they're in, in neutral baseline exchanges, it doesn't suit Fritz well. Uh, but in the last three matches that Djokovic and Fritz have played, Novak's second serve win percentages are 61, 64, and 57. All excellent. Fritz really needs to turn that around if he wants any chance. For Djokovic, I think it's going to be important that he locks in at the very start of the match to take advantage of that mental scar tissue. He's up 8-0. So what does that mean? It means that the, the hope and the belief that fuse is going to run a little bit more thin for Taylor Fritz. Um, all of that goes away if Taylor gets off to a good start. And suddenly you believe, this one's different. You know, this I, I, this one might be my day. Unlike the U.S. Open, um, which is the last time the last time they played in a hardcore quarterfinal slam. So the last major they did this. Um, the, the start of the match is going to be very important. And then the other key for Djokovic is don't get outserved too badly, you know, because it would be stunning if Fritz won the majority of the extended rallies in this match. That would be shocking. Not, we don't expect that to happen. The danger here for Djokovic is that if Fritz can serve great, return aggressively on the second serve, and win enough of those shorter points to have success in the match as a whole. That's the danger for Djokovic. But if he doesn't get outserved, then that doesn't really look like much of a path for Fritz either. All right, my prediction, uh, Fritz is pretty stubborn. He he believes in his game. He believes in how he plays. And that, in a lot of ways, is a blessing. It's a good quality for a tennis player to have that belief. Uh, it's also a curse when he goes up against matchups like this with Djokovic, where I don't think Fritz is very imaginative. I don't think he's very creative. I don't think he's very experimental. And I think we see the same result over and over again in this matchup. And yeah, I don't expect it to change. So my prediction here is Djokovic in three. Let's go to the next one. How long did I take there? I'm at the 10 minute mark. Uh, that's about right. That's what I want. Okay. Sinner versus Rublev. I'm really pumped for this one. Uh, it is the the late match, the last match on. 
Uh, before I get into this preview, I want to address something. I've been getting a lot of comments about Sinner coverage. Uh, I'm really happy about that in a way because Yannick Sinner's popularity is growing, deservedly so. I'm really happy that people are excited about him. Um, and, and this, to me, showed that people are excited about him because they're like, where are the Sinner videos? Um, so for me, it's kind of a sorry, not sorry situation. I'm sorry because I understand that, you know, Djokovic has been discussed. Um, Alcaraz has been discussed. Um, Medvedev has been discussed against, you know, his match against Felix, right? And, and Sinner's kind of that odd man out. So I, I do feel sorry and I feel bad in that way. At the same time, like there are reasons for this, you know, it's not, it's, it's just how the cookie crumbled at this event where, first of all, Sinner hasn't gone up against an opponent who brings pre-match intrigue like a Felix Ojealiasim, right? Like if he plays Felix, I'm covering that match, period. Um, and then the second thing is he's had so little drama in his matches that there hasn't been a situation where I've stopped what I'm doing and shifted my attention to that and made a video about it because there's enough stuff to talk about there where that can 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 happen. Um, and then for the Hatchinov match, I would have loved to make a video about the Hatchinov match. That was the first one where he did have uh, an opponent where I would have liked to cover that match, but it would have been at the expense of Tsitsipas Fritz. And my judgment was that Tsitsipas Fritz was, was uh, a more interesting match to cover. Um, so, you know, you have to make those decisions. Um, part of it is also scheduling and the time zones and all of that. So, you know, again, I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry because it's just the way it goes sometimes. And, uh, you know, I don't do it intentionally. All right. Uh, form. Sinner is 12-0 and in sets. As I mentioned, there hasn't been any drama here. The Hatchinov win is the impressive one of the bunch. Like, Baez was a pretty favorable third-round opponent. Uh, he beat the brakes off of Sebastian Baez. Um... What were the, the first two? Uh, the first round was Botik van der Zanschulp, and the second round was Jesper de Jong. So he played uh, two Dutchmen, back-to-back -back rounds. What are the odds? Um, it certainly helps, just going back to uh, the, the Hatchinov match, uh, it certainly helps that Sinner saved 9 of 10 break points in that match. Uh, he converted 5 of his 8 break opportunities. Nonetheless, uh, it, it's very impressive poise to beat Hachinov in best of five on a hard court in straight sets when serving only 54%. That's what Sinner did, and that gives you an idea of how fine-tuned his baseline game is right now, um, especially just you know getting out of, of those situations and, and beating Hachinov in all, in all phases of the game. Uh, attacking better than him, defending better than him, uh, winning the short rallies, winning the long rallies. The ball striking and the movement has been so dynamic from center. Nobody has really been able to hang with Yannick from the back of the court. Rublev, on the other hand, was really close to losing in the first round. I made a video about that match. Uh, at this point, he deserves a ton of credit for navigating this draw. Vilch, Eubanks, Korda, Demonor. I said in the preview, that is a whole lot of talent. Uh, like, 
those are guys with firepower. Those are guys with, with special skills. I don't want to always necessarily say weapons, but all of them have some special skills. And Rublev was able to get through. I thought he had one of the worst draws uh, to make it to the quarterfinals. Um, so props for, for Andre for that. And the, the Demon Ore match was really, really excellent quality. Uh, but ultimately, I think in neutral situations, he was able to push Demon Ore around enough with his, dicta with his dictating offensive ground game. He protected his second serve well enough. Um, he held up physically just well enough. He was fading in the end. Uh, and, and he ended up catching fire uh, in the fifth set, early in the fifth set, and running away with that really, really good match. Head-to-head, -head, you're going to see 4-2 Sinner. You're going to see that. I saw it on an ESPN graphic uh, just a couple moments ago, and they didn't really clarify what that head-to-head -head really is. If you look at what it really is, it's 4-0. Sinner. That's the reality because Rublev's wins are once I think Sinner played three games and then retired. And then once Sinner won the first set and then hurt his knee at Roland Garros and retired. So not only were those both retirements, they're not even retirements where you give Rublev the benefit of the doubt. Like he, he didn't even have any success in those matches uh, pre-retirement of Sinner. So it's really 4-0 if we're being honest. And some of these matches were being played when Sinner was having a lot of trouble beating top 10 players. Andre was the one guy who Yannick felt good against. And then he'd also feel good against Alcaraz a little bit later on. Uh, the glaring factor in this matchup has been Rublev's second serve weakness against Sinner's aggressive returning. Rublev has never done better than 43.2% Second serve points won in their four completed matches. That is a huge problem. And what does Sinner do on the second serve return? Well, he backs up a little bit generally. Sometimes he can take it early. But usually he backs up a little bit, gives himself some time, and he blasts it. He just he simply uses his weight of shot, his baseline power um, to be aggressive on the second serve return. And that has been a real Achilles heel for Rublev in this matchup. So um, what are the improvements that potentially Rublev has made? Well, second serve, that shot has taken a step up. Now the question is how big? Uh, Chris Eubanks was on ESPN calling his match, and uh, he, he thinks that Rublev's second serve is pretty good now. Sinner is that ultimate test. The average speeds, they've been mid to low-ish 90s. So it's not like he's at the point where he's completely dispelled any questions in that area. If if he was hitting average speeds, 97, 98, or even triple digits, uh, then I would feel really good about where Rublev's at. But right now I still have questions. I know it's better. I know it's improved, but how good is it? Uh, the other thing with Rublev is the backhand. He's made some adjustments on his take back. He's using his legs on it a lot more to my eyes. And he's trusting his backhand more. He's being more aggressive on it. Uh, I got some good Tennis Insights data from Hong Kong, uh, the tournament that Rublev won heading into this Australian Open. 
these numbers are eye-popping. In Hong Kong, in his run, he hit his backhand down the line 44.5% of the time. That is astronomical. The tour average for backhands down the line is 30%. And the book on Sinner is to make him run to his forehand and he'll give you some errors. He'll miss some. So on paper, this is a good thing for Rublev. He takes his backhand hard down the line. By the way, he did it a ton against Demonor as well, who is also susceptible to getting a little bit rushed for power on his forehand side. On paper, that's a good thing for Rublev and a pattern that, that he can lean on. But I also think that Andre can force it sometimes, mistime it, and make some errors. He did hit quite a few backhands down the line into the alley against Demon. Overall, by the way, Rublev looks fantastic from the baseline. He looks absolutely fantastic. Dynamite in every area. As for Sinner, I think what Yannick needs to do other than whatever the heck he's been doing in these previous matchups, attacking the second serve, that he's been doing well. Um, I, I wish I could give you a little bit more on what Sinner is doing well against Rublev, but that's the one, and I, I didn't go back and look at notes that maybe I, I could have, but that's the one that's always stuck out to me, and statistically it's so significant. But other than that, given the way Rublev is playing um, from neutral baseline situations, how good he's been, at taking initiative and taking control with his baseline power, uh, I think Sinner needs to go after his first serve and go after his first forehand uh, and not let Rublev get to neutral. And it's always good to do this, right? Like I, I even mentioned that this is something that Djokovic does really well against Fritz. So this is pretty much a universal thing. The reason why I bring it up with Sinner is because against Andre, I feel it's available for him. I feel like it's an area where he can have success. So it's not that I'm coming up with a brilliant game plan here. It's just I'm identifying an area where I think Yannick can have success because Rublev on the return of serve, he refuses to block. He does not stand far back. And then if you get to the plus one, well, he doesn't scramble all that well. So I think you need to be very aggressive on your first two swings, your first serve and your first forehand. And, you know, look out for Sinner. There have been some matches. Sinner's very confident in his second serve. So I've seen some matches for Sinner where he's only made 50% of his first serves, and he's okay with that because his plan is to be very, very aggressive and try to get free points on his first serve. I wouldn't be surprised if he does that against Rublev and like maybe he only serves 55% in, but he wins 85% or 80% and he protects his second serve well. If he does that, he's going to hold serve. Don't get too fixated on that first serve percentage. I didn't see the uh, Rublev's Eubanks win. I didn't see any of that match. Uh, but I think he's missed a lot of makeable returns against Vilch and against Demonor. I don't think Rublev returned that well. So I, I think that is an area where he can be a little bit exposed. And Sinner's serve looks good. I mentioned 9 out of 10 break points saved against Hachinov. So many of those were huge serves. Um, so many. It's the same principle on taking big swings on the second serve return. We're talking about the return game instead of the serve game, but it's the same thing. It's trying to make Rublev defend right away so he can't start using his forehand in rally. He can't get to that 
that uh, backhand down the line in rally. That's the idea around all of this. All right, prediction. I think a lot of things are working against Rublev here. Uh, there's the freshness factor. Physically and mentally, how will that affect performance in this matchup? Performance. Sinners, batteries are 100%. I mean, you cannot, you cannot be more efficient in getting to this stage than Yannick Sinner has been. Rublev has played two five-setters. He played a night match against Demonor, and he was cramping in the end. Not only that, um, as I mentioned, it was the night match, so he's got like probably seven or eight hours less recovery than Sinner. I worry, I think, with Rublev a little bit less about the physical fatigue and more about the mental fatigue because, I mean, every every match he plays, every close match he plays, he's putting himself through the ringer mentally. So I worry about that. Uh, it also doesn't bode well that Sinner has had so much success against Rublev when Sinner was a lesser player. Like, Yannick's better now. So what, you know, where, where are we at now? Now, I think Rublev has made improvements also, but you can't begin to even argue that those improvements are dr as drastic as the improvements that Sinner has made. No, you can't. Um, and overall, I see Sinner as a, a similar ball striker to Rublev with better movement, a better return, and better forecourt skills. In, in terms of my prediction, I'm, I'm between picking Sinner in three or, or four. I'm going to go Sinner in four. Yannick Sinner in four sets here. Hercoc versus Medvedev as we move to the bottom half of the draw. Uh, let's start with form. Medvedev hasn't played a match yet where I feel like he was firing on all cylinders. But he's definitely finished off these matches strong. Uh, against the likes of Emil Rusevori and Nuno Borges. That's always the most important thing that you look for. How did you finish the match? Because if you if you were dominating by the end of the match, then you really weren't all that close to losing. Um, that's how I feel um, in general. Uh, but if you look at the big picture, I want to kind of use a stat to illustrate where Medvedev has been at. I mean, so Daniil's been broken 13 times in his first uh, four matches. And I wanted to just compare that to the last two times that he's made the Australian Open final and see when he went into the quarterfinal on those runs, how many times had he, had he been broken? And I didn't even look at the US Open uh, title run where I'm sure it was he was dominant in that run. So I didn't even look at that. But just to look at the Australian Open final runs, 2022, he was broken three times at this point. 2021, he was broken six times. Remember, this year, he's been broken 13 times already. So uh, he's he's really kind of off his pace. Hercoc, first of all, desperately needed this run at this event. Um, it's only his second major quarterfinal. And, you know, he, he just needed another run at a slam. It was way overdue. By his standards, it's also been pretty simple getting through all of this. When I say by his standards, the context here is that Hercoc plays a ton of close matches and he's like in a deciding set, it seems, every other match, at least in best of three. 
Uh, but in this one, he's only gone to five once. It was against Jakob Menchik, and he won at 6-3. So pretty good. Uh, he's probably been the player of all the quarter finalists that I've watched the least at this year's Aussie. But I did see him a ton at United Cup. And I feel like he really picked up where he left off from last year, hitting the forehand a lot better. So all signs are pretty good for Hubie. This head-to-head -head is an interesting one. Hercotch leads it 3-2. to two. Medvedev has never beaten Hercotch in straight sets. And when they played at a major, Wimbledon, that was a Hercotch win in five. I've always maintained that Hubie is at his best when he's coming forward. And the Medvedev matchup encourages him to come in a lot. Therefore, he plays well. Like that has always been, that's my long-standing theory on why Hercotch plays Medvedev well. And uh, I think to add on to that from an execution standpoint, Hubie is deadly with every serve, but that includes those wide serves. And you just know that he's going to hit his spots on those wide serves. That's a big deal against Medvedev because some players, you know, for as much as the wide serve is open, and available against Medvedev, when you miss your spot on that, Medvedev clocks the forehand on the deuce side, usually with tons of depth, hard at your feet. You can't miss your spot on that serve. And on the ad side, I think people actually have trouble, righties, I should say, have trouble dragging him off court. Hercotch will find that sharp angle. So he's got that working for him. Uh, but for Medvedev, the advantage in this matchup is pretty simple. When they're both at the baseline, Hubie can't hang. He doesn't have the power to find a way around Medvedev, and he doesn't have the speed to live with Daniil's precision from the back of the court with any kind of consistency. So for Medvedev, it starts with depth of return. Not to keep Hercotch from attacking the first ball, because I think no matter what, that's a tough ask. He's probably going to find some attack on the first ball. But uh, if he's just able to keep the ball deep enough in the court where he keeps Hercotch back at the baseline, uh, I think if if he can do that, that's a huge win for him right away. And he'll have ton of uh, tons of success if he's able to do that. And then in rally, same thing. It's just keep the ball deep enough where you're pinning Hercotch in the back of the court because Medvedev will outmaneuver him if they're both at the baseline, plain and simple. Um, I also think there's one thing for Daniil, which is a concern in the execution department. That is the second serve. Um, it fell off for a set against Borges. It just kind of went off the rails and it cost him a set against Nuno. So that has been periodically shaky for Medvedev. I, I went out of my way to mention in the Felix match, his second serve was great, all three sets in the Felix match. But then we saw in the Borges match that it, it still can, can hit those rough patches. That's something to watch out for. As for Hercotch, I think the main thing is, other than the tactics that have always worked against Medvedev and coming forward, uh, you know, this is about dealing with the pressure, I think. Uh, he is not one of those guys where net rushing is encoded in their DNA. If net rushing is encoded in your DNA, you're going you're gonna to do it no matter what the situation is. But for Hercotch, well, he's normally a guy who actually does hang back quite a bit. Plays from the baseline, stays consistent, and 
you know, does a little bit of counter punching and hopes for the miss. That's what he does. He can't do that against Medvedev. He'll lose. But my question is, under pressure, will there be hesitation? And in a similar vein, will the forehand stay solid when the nerves come into play? Medvedev does make more returns than 99% of Hercotch's opponents, or he will make more returns. So as much as you can say, oh, Medvedev's return position opens himself up for you know, certain plays to work, the drop shot, the serve plus approach, Hercotch doesn't really serve in volley notably, and maybe that'll hurt him, and maybe he should, but usually he doesn't. Um, as much as you can say all that stuff about Medvedev's return, what you can't say is that he doesn't ask the questions. He does ask the questions. So like, will Hercotch's forehand play ball under pressure? Prediction. This one is tough for me. I feel if Hercotch does everything perfectly, this match actually is on his racket. I think if Hercotch executes to 100%, he wins. But that so rarely happens in a match like this. Uh, I really respect Medvedev's experience and his mental game, his problem solving, his toughness. I respect the, the mental game way too much to go against him in this spot. Even if you look at two things that, that maybe do go against him. The matchup, it's a tough matchup for him, and his form has been unconvincing. So all of the ingredients are here for me to pick against him. At the end of the day, I'm just going to the head. I'm going to the intangibles, and I think Medvedev has a big edge over Hercotch in that department, and therefore I pick Medvedev in five. All right, one more here. We wrap this up with Zverev versus Alcaraz. Form. Alcaraz started off pretty average, a little bit uh, choppy, I'll say. But I think he found his confidence against Jerry Shung in the second set. And uh, the Ketsmanovich match he just played was, it was like a showcase. It was a skills exhibition. And uh, I, I like what Ketsmanovich has been doing. Like, I think he's beefed up his uh, his ground game and he's just going after his, his forehand a little bit more. But uh, what Alcaraz did to Misha, I mean, he just overwhelmed him with offense in a variety of ways. And man, he, most of the things that he tried, and Alcaraz was inventive here, they worked. So I really couldn't be much more impressed with the way Alcaraz played against Ketsmanovich. As for Zverev, st stick with me here, because I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take you for a little bit of a loop. Many parts of Zverev's game have been humming. They've been good. Uh, the serve, good as ever. The backhand, good as ever. The volleys, really solid, and he hasn't been afraid to use them. The consistency, that's been there, especially under pressure, and it's helped him win matches. But the forehand, it hasn't looked right at any point. And... On one hand, you could say, wow, you know, it speaks to the rest of Zverev's game and how good it is that he can make the Australian Open quarterfinal without hitting his forehand well, because he really hasn't at any point in any match. And look, that's not to say that if you go to the highlights, you're not going to find a Zverev forehand winner where you can't be like, see, see Gil, like he hit one. Trust me, like, okay, there's one match I didn't see the Mickelson match 
which, I mean, based on the scoreline, it was probably his best performance, right? It was the only straight setter, but uh, that was the only match I missed. But the the three matches that I saw, forehand just hasn't been good. So on one hand, it speaks to the the prowess of the rest of his game. On the other hand, it's the reason why he's needed two fifth set tie breaks to get to this point. Another concern for me is that the mental performance against Nori wasn't good. Every time he got a lead, his level dropped in that match. Uh, when he had break points in the fifth set and a chance to take control, he did not play those break points well. He hit those. He hit his second serve returns as passive and short and weak as you can possibly hit them. Um, so you know the, the nerves, the nerve management wasn't really good against Nori. Um, and then you know in the ten point tie break, yeah, he made a lot of balls. Nori gave him the mistakes. Um, I, I hope to talk about Cam in the near future. I have a lot to say about him, but I you know it's not. This isn't about him right now. Um, and, and he was able to get through the match. Similar thing against Lucas Klein. He gets through that 10-point tiebreak in the end because he serves great and he makes balls. And Lucas Klein makes some mistakes, you know. Um, overarching thought on his form. Again, I've watched three out of the four of these matches. In none of them has he looked good enough to take on Alcaraz. Head-to-head. It's 4-3 Zverev. The last time they played was the tour finals. Quickest court on tour. Alcaraz said he really struggled to get used to the speed. Carlito still took a set, but uh, Zverev got the better of him there. Uh, the other two times they played last year, Alcaraz won very easily. The U.S. Open match, Zverev physically wasn't really right. A little bit jaded, coming off of a highly physical, one of the more physical matches of the season. Uh, against Yannick Sinner. Um, and then Madrid, round of 16 match. I don't recall that one too well, but but Alcaraz won it really, really easily. Uh, in 2022, they played twice. The first was at Madrid. Alcaraz crushed an exhausted Zverev who got screwed by the scheduling. Then they played at Roland Garros, most well, the second most consequential match they've played, but the other major quarterfinal they've played. So this is going to be their third. And... Zverev played great in that match. I think mentally it was a great spot for Zverev, uh, feeling like an underdog. And Alcaraz, he felt the pressure in that match. Wasn't consistent enough. There was too big a there was too big of a consistency gap uh, in favor of Zverev, and that really took him across the finish line. That was unfortunately his last win of of 2022 because of what happened with the ankle in the next match. So. The the previous other two matches, the two I haven't talked about, 2021 easy wins for Zverev, that is a pre-formed Alcaraz. So they've had quite the, you know, quite the history. Um, if you really start Alcaraz's career where I believe it it actually kind of starts in earnest as far as a being a top player, uh, which is 2022. Then it's kind of 3-2 Alcaraz. So I find that this has been a competitive head-to-head, -head, a back-and-forth head-to-head, but I don't find that this has been a Zverev-advantaged head-to-head, largely speaking. Okay, let's get into the tactics. For Alcaraz, uh, the drop shots are always there. 
And this was Cam Norrie's plan in the round of 16 match against Zverev. Norrie's plan was to finish short balls with the drop shot. And it was highly effective for Cameron Norrie, who doesn't have as much power to push Zverev back and doesn't execute the drop shot quite as well as Alcaraz. So if Zverev has all, if sorry, if Nori has all this success with the drop shot, what is it going to be for Alcaraz? I mean, this is always something that Carlitos goes to against Zverev with a lot of success. The other thing he likes to do is be really intimidating on the second serve return. Uh, Alcaraz likes to stand close and he likes to take big rips. And what usually happens in response is Zverev feels the need to hit his second serve big. And Alcaraz ends up drawing some double faults. Sometimes Alcaraz ends up drawing some second serve aces from Zverev. But uh, it it feels like Zverev, uh, sorry, Alcaraz feels like the math is in his favor when he forces Zverev to go really big on the second serve. And if he doesn't, Alcaraz is really good, quick hands. It's not a kick serve that Zverev hits. Usually it's in the middle of the box. Alcaraz is very good at getting out of the way and hitting aggressive second serve returns. Uh, this tournament in particular, uh, it goes back to the Zverev forehand. Like if you pin Zverev back and make him hit out of his forehand corner, his forehand cross court all tournament long has been short and weak a lot of the time. And then when he steps in and tries to be aggressive, it's been erratic and inconsistent. When he goes down the line, well, it's not really there. So the forehand hasn't been effective. Nori was teeing off with his backhand cross court. Lucas Klein was teeing off. Dominic Kupfer, another lefty, was trying to be aggressive with his two-handed backhand off of Zverev's forehand cross court. So if, if these guys are doing that, um, especially the lefties who are using their backhands, then what is Alcaraz going to be able to do off of his forehand? I mean, I, I think a lot. Like Zverev just needs to bring more quality off of his forehand side or he's really going to get punished in a big way. Um, and, you know, defensively, he has a level of success against all these guys. He's not going to have the same level of success against Alcaraz. He's just, he's a better attacking player. As for Zverev's tactics, Sasha, really good in the backhand and backhand exchanges uh, in their Roland Garros meeting two years ago, and it's reasonable to expect that he will always be a little bit better than Alcaraz in that particular pattern. He obviously can win the free points battle with his serving advantage. That takes pressure off of the rest of his game. He is generally more disciplined and more consistent from the baseline, and I think that pays off under pressure. Just like, as I said, it's paid off under pressure against uh, in two fits at tie, tie breaks for Zverev in this tournament. Another thing with Zverev is he's been coming forward a lot, and I'm of two, I have, I'm of two minds on this. On one hand, Alcaraz is a speedster, and you want to finish at net against Alcaraz. And a lot of the players who played him well in the second half of last year did do that. They came forward, like Hercotch and Tommy Paul, for example. Uh, the counter is that Zverev has a tendency to sometimes force his way in on average approach shots. And Alcaraz has the shot-making ability to make passes that 
other players wouldn't make as consistently or as effectively. Um, and even, you know, the speed when it comes to Alcaraz's ability to chase down a first volley that other players just aren't quite there on it. Um, and Zverev is not, is still, you know, he's not the most clinical volleyer. He's a good volleyer now, um, but he's he's not so good that I expect that he can come in off of mediocre approaches against Alcaraz and get away with it. No, I don't think so. So it's going to be interesting to see what is the success rate for Zverev coming forward. Here's my prediction. All of the tactical stuff I just said, it doesn't matter that much to me in this case. What matters to me and you know what's really informing my prediction here is the form. I just don't think Zverev is playing well enough right now, particularly on the forehand. I think that's going to be a problem. And also, it's similar to the U.S. Open, where Zverev is coming in with a pretty big physical disadvantage. It's a little bit harder to blame his draw this time because it's not like he had to play Yannick Sinner in the fourth round. Um, but it, again, it's the same thing. I think Zverev at this point in time, probably a little bit stronger physically than he was at the U.S. Open. Um, but again, it's like, can he, can he go five again? Is he really going to have a lot of juice if this goes five again? I don't think so. Um, ultimately, though, my prediction is that it doesn't go five. I'm going to go Alcaraz in four. So there you have it, my quarterfinal predictions. We have arrived. We are headed down the stretch. I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do as much post-match content as possible. I want to do Sinner versus Rublev. Um, I'm going to do it. It just might come out late because it's the last match on Laver. And that is the most difficult time slot for me to cover with the time zone. Um, but that will probably be my next video. It's going to be a Sinner versus um, versus Rublev post-match. And also, uh, there's going to be an episode of three coming out very soon after Djokovic plays his quarterfinal against Fritz. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.